Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod, Israel Policy Forum's podcast. I'm Evan Gottesman, Associate Director of Policy and Communications at Israel Policy Forum. So yesterday was Election Day in the United States, and we had the midterm congressional elections, which saw the Democrats retake control of the House of Representatives and Republicans retain control of the U.S. Senate. The question for us in the Israel policy world is the direction of the two parties on the Israel issue. So to discuss this, we're joined by Israel Policy Forum's policy director, Michael Koplow. Michael has written extensively about Israel for major publications, including Haaretz, The New Republic, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, The Forward, and many others. And of course, he writes Israel Policy Forum's weekly Koplow column. Previously, Michael was the founding program director of the Israel Institute. He has a PhD in political science from Georgetown, a master's in Middle Eastern studies from Harvard, and a JD from NYU, and he has his BA in history from Brandeis University. Michael, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Evan. So, Michael, when we look at the elections and what it means for the U.S.-Israel relationship and American foreign policy concerning Israel, there are some shifts in both parties that come to mind. Yesterday saw the election of some more progressive candidates to the House, Um, There are three names that are tossed around a lot in relation to Israel, even though it is only three people and not necessarily representative of the whole party. Some take it as part of a trend. I'm talking about Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, who openly endorses a one-state solution, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, who is sort of agnostic on the question of one versus two states. She was previously supportive of a two-state solution and has kind of walked back those statements. And it's not just on the Democratic side, though. Among Republicans, you look at what the Trump administration has done in the Israeli-Palestinian arena, the removal of the two-state solution from the Republican Party platform in 2016. So there seems to be this march away from a consensus and a move to the extremes among members of both parties. So I think that in some ways that is correct, and in some ways it's not. So let's start with the ways in which that is obviously correct. There is no question that among the grassroots of the Democratic Party, there is less of an emotional attachment to Israel less of a willingness to overlook some of the ways in which Israel mistreats the Palestinians, less of a willingness to take Israeli security claims at face value. And, you know, I think you see that certainly um, among the grassroots, but you see it with uh, new progressive Democratic politicians. Uh, You mentioned a bunch of them, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib. So that's definitely a, a dynamic that's going on. Um, but, you know, even even with those three, I think you have to make some distinctions. So um, Ocasio-Cortez seemed like she was confused on Israeli-Palestinian issues, basically said as much that it's not an issue that she's looked at uh, very hard. And the truth is that with the district she represents, she's not going to be focused on foreign policy and she's not going to be really focused on Israeli-Palestinian issues. So, um, you know, whatever her views and positions on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict end up being, 
I'm not sure it's gonna it's gonna matter. She's you know a, a backbench Democratic Congresswoman who is just not going to have any meaningful foreign policy portfolio. So yeah, she's certainly she's certainly representative of something, and she's and she's you know the uh, in some ways the the face of the new Democratic Party. But I think it's a way too early to say what her real positions are on this issue, and and b um, really premature to think that she is going to impact anything. Moving to the other two, Ilhan Omar seems to be someone who wants to be involved in foreign policy, and she has tweeted and said uh, a bunch of extremely unsavory things about about Israel. Right, she, uh, she was the one who said Israel had hypnotized the world. Exactly, Israel has hypnotized the world. Israel, Israel is an apartheid regime. Um, no question, uh, you know, for me at least not the type of person that uh, I would like to see in Congress opining on Israel issues, um, leaving aside whatever other other merits she brings to the table. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, it, it's notable that uh, both she and Rashida Tlaib are the first two Muslim women to be elected to the Congress. And, you know, that's 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 something to to be celebrated. And it's a big deal, um, setting aside uh, their individual positions on issues. Um, Ilhan Omar uh, seems to be somebody who does want to be involved in foreign policy issues, but with her too, Israel-Palestine is not going to be her top priority. She represents a district in Minnesota um, that has a large Somali population. I imagine that she's going to be far more involved in issues that affect the Somali diaspora community than she is going to be involved in Israeli-Palestinian issues. And then Rashida Tlaib, who uh, is herself Palestinian, uh, her family lives in the West Bank, uh, she is very outspoken on these issues, as one might expect. She is uh, on record as unambiguously uh, supporting a one-state a one-state solution. She says that two states does not work. She's on the record as questioning U.S. military aid to Israel. You know, again, none, none of these are positions uh, certainly that, that I support or am comfortable with uh, in any way, shape, or form. But um, I'm not sure how much influence she is going to have on foreign policy either. Um, so, so I think I think there's a lot of this is sort of a, a long way of saying that there's a lot of there's been a lot of noise about these candidates, but none of them are even close to being in positions of power or impact uh, when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And um, you know there are there are folks there there are certainly folks in both parties who are not close to the leadership, who hold extreme views on Israel and Palestinians on both sides. Um, do I like it? No, I don't like it. Um, but, you know, people have been kind of uh, wringing their hands now for months over uh, over these candidates, and um, I don't think they're really going to move the needle. Right. No, I, I don't think they're necessarily merit the, the headlines that they bring, but I also don't think it's just about the three of them. I think it's a, it's a question of where the progressive Democratic Party base is going in the next couple of decades about Israel, because um, like you said, that, that Israel is not going to be their first issue, and the election wasn't about Israel. It might have been one of the more partisan foreign policy issues, but the election wasn't about foreign policy. It was about domestic things. It was about the Trump administration. But, but let's, 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 even look at, let's even look at progressive candidates on Israel in this cycle. OK, you know, the, there were two races with very high profile progressive candidates where Israel became a central campaign issue for one reason or another. One was in Texas between Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. 
and one was in Florida between Ron DeSantis and Andrew Gillum. Now, O'Rourke and Gillum both lost their races. Um, I haven't seen any exit polling data uh, to uh, suggest that it's because of Israel issues. But it's notable that both of those two, who again were, um, you know, in many ways, along with Stacey Abrams in Georgia, the, the three progressive figureheads for this election, when O'Rourke and Gillum were accused by their opponents of being anti-Israel, neither of them leaned into that at all. They went out of their way to demonstrate that they were not anti-Israel, that they were in fact pro-Israel, uh, and and to point to ways in which they had tangibly done things or tangibly taken votes that were pro-Israel. So, you know, what that says to me is that even within the progressive camp, this notion that um, it's it's kind of unambiguously cost-free or even beneficial to take uh, positions that are not pro-Israel positions. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that there's evidence for that in the progressive camp writ large. I think that for some candidates that may make sense, and some in some districts that may make sense. Um, but I'm not sure that the progressive politics is at the point yet where it is electorally beneficial to take anti-Israel positions. And even you know, leaving aside leaving aside Gillum and O'Rourke. The the two um, the two leading progressive candidates who are likely to run for president in 2020 are probably Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And with them, too, you know, Bernie Sanders has taken uh, a bit of a more critical stance on Israel issues than Elizabeth Warren has. But. Uh, but exactly, exactly. In any in, in, in any in, in any sense, and they both go out of their way to emphasize that they are not. And so. I think that's the point, right? Like the, the I'm not going to sit here and argue that uh, that within progressive circles, you know, everybody is is pro-Israel and 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 wants the Democratic Party to uh, continue um, its historical stance toward Israel. Um, but I don't see evidence yet that this is a this is a big issue that is just sweeping over progressive politics, and that uh, progressive politicians are going to have to. Uh, pay fealty. Uh, Neither of them would but, embrace the label of being anti-Israel. And exactly, exactly. In any in, in, in any in, in any sense, and they both go out of their way to emphasize that they are not. And so, I think that's the point, right? Like the, the I'm not going to sit here and argue that uh, that within progressive circles, you know, everybody is is pro-Israel and 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 wants the Democratic Party to uh, continue um, its historical stance toward Israel, um, but. I don't see evidence yet that this is a this is a big issue that is just sweeping over progressive politics and that uh, progressive politicians are going to have to uh, pay fealty to. Right. And foreign policy issues might not necessarily be at front of mind for people. But I, I don't know if I'm as as you're not, you're not as sanguine. You're not as sanguine as I am. Right. But I, I just don't. Right. But I just don't know how bipartisan this issue stays. That doesn't necessarily mean that progressives are going to openly embrace the anti-Israel label, especially ones who hold elected office, maybe with the exception of Ilhan Omar. I don't know how comfortable even Rashida Tlaib or or Ocasio-Cortez would feel with that label. And as we discussed, uh, Warren and, and Sanders certainly wouldn't apply it to themselves. But, um, 
you know, since the Obama administration and under the Trump administration into the future, I don't think this stays a bipartisan issue. Absolutely. And and by the way, I, I don't mean to conflate two things because, you know, before we were talking about whether um, progressives are, are pro-Israel or not, and now we shifted to talking about Israel as a, as a bipartisan issue. Israel is not a bipartisan issue anymore. That, that ship has sailed. Um, that, that, that ship sailed, you know, sort of, that ship left the dock at some point during the Obama administration, and you know it's uh, it's now way way out at sea. Um, the Republicans have have a hundred percent seized on Israel as a campaign issue, um, and the Israeli government has unquestionably thrown its lot in with one side of the political aisle here. Um, and Israel is definitely a partisan issue. Now that doesn't mean that one party is pro-Israel and one party is anti-Israel. Um, but the fact that Israel has become a campaign issue in so many places, uh, you know, by definition, sort of makes it makes it no longer a bipartisan issue. And I think that's definitely more the takeaway than a wave of anti-Israel Democrats, as some headlines have trumpeted. Although the people who were elected that we talked about, Taib, Omar, uh, Cortez, um, do certainly demonstrate something new in the party. But as you mentioned, this Israeli government has definitively sided with one party, with the Republicans. We saw that under the Obama administration. We see that now in the Trump administration, and in a backwards kind of way, we saw that over the last week with the synagogue attack in Pittsburgh, where the Israeli government went above and beyond. Obviously, they were going to be gracious to the United States government, whoever is in office, but they seemed almost to be running interference for the Trump administration in the criticism that they faced after that really horrific attack. So given that, how does the next Democratic administration um, demonstrate their uh, goodwill to the Israeli government uh, if they're still interested in showing it. So I don't think that any administration, Democratic or Republican, is going to look to pick a public fight with the Israeli government. Um, you know, it's aside from the fact that it's not necessarily beneficial politically for Democrats, Israel is also a key American ally. So, you know, that, that, that's, that's not going away no matter what happens. But I do think that in the way that the pendulum has swung so far to one side under this White House, under the next White House, it's going to, assuming that it's a Democratic White House, it's going to swing back uh, toward, toward where it has been. Um, and I think that uh, any next Democratic president is going to, uh, if he or she is smart at least, going to look to establish very strong pro-Israel credentials when it comes to Israel security. And, you know, nobody's going to look to screw around with military funding. Nobody's going to look to um, to play politics with supplementary funding for Iron Dome. That's not going to happen. Um, but a, a lot of the things that this Israeli government has now gotten used to as a result of the Trump administration's policies, um, namely th this sort of unrelenting war on the Palestinians where, uh, given every opportunity to hit the Palestinians with things big and small, the White House does it. The uh, the next Democratic White House is, is not going to do that. And I think that a lot of the things that the Trump administration has done will be 
reversed. Um, not the embassy. I think the embassy is likely in Jerusalem for good. Um, unless it was a, a really, really left-wing Democratic president. I think that would be a yeah. bad look for any president to move it back. But it would be it would be a it would be a terrible look, and frankly, it would it would be it would be terrible policy um, from from my point of view. Um, I think that uh, I think that what should be done, and I think what will what is likely to be done under the next Democratic president is, uh, of course, keeping the embassy in Jerusalem, but also making it clear unambiguously that uh, Jerusalem, in the U.S. view, is going to be the capital of two states. Uh, West Jerusalem for Israel and East Jerusalem for the Palestinians. Yes. Do you see maybe yeah. reopening the consulate as a separate entity in Jerusalem, the consulate that had previously served as a conduit to the Palestinians and that was recently merged into the embassy as kind of a subunit? I think that I think that's definitely possible, probably likely. I think that restoring funding to USAID in the West Bank and Gaza is uh, almost a certainty under the next Democratic president. And so, you know, the question is, you know, to none of, none of these things are in any way anti-Israel moves. You know, I would argue from Israel's security perspective and from the perspective of preserving two states, these are all strongly pro-Israel moves. It's just going to be a matter of messaging and making sure that uh, the next Democratic president does this in a way that makes it clear it's not being done uh, to, you know, hit, hit at the Israelis or any way or, or not being done, you know, you know, the, the way the way Trump came in and if Obama did something, then Trump did the opposite. It almost didn't matter what the policy was. Um, the next Democratic president has to make it clear that, you know, if these things are done, it's not just because Trump did the opposite. It's because, you know, these are smart policies that benefit both Israel and the Palestinians. And that U.S. policy of supporting two states is also without question to Israel's benefit. So, you know, this is a pro-Israel agenda. Um, you can have a pro-Israel agenda that looks different from the type of pro-Israel agenda that the Trump administration has embraced. The key is not allowing the democratic pro-Israel agenda to be tarred as anything as anything different. More more interesting will be um, if we have a Republican president with a left of center Israeli prime minister, um, where the Republican base here is pushing for one thing, but the Israeli government is saying something different. Although you've already seen not in public, but behind closed doors, some Israeli officials within the government and some um, of the professionals in the security and military establishment voicing some private misgivings about Trump administration policy. And you had uh, Gadi Eisenkot, the the outgoing chief of staff of the army, um, complaining to the security cabinet about the uh, kind of strangling of the Palestinians um, in terms of aid and, and the ramifications that would have for um, Israel's position in the West Bank. Um, so, you know, I can only imagine how that would be under a left of center prime minister versus a, a Republican president. So now, Michael, we've talked a lot about the Democrats and about the Israeli angle and how this Republican administration has been but I want to take a moment to talk about the Republican Party base because it was a Republican president, the first President Bush, who launched the Madrid Conference, the big peace conference in the early 1990s. And George W. Bush, who had the roadmap to peace and explicitly endorsed a two-state solution. So how do you get from that to the 
removal of the two-state solution from the Republican Party platform in 2016 to the changes around Jerusalem, the revoking aid to the Palestinians, and so on and so forth. So I think that a lot of Republicans in the post-September 11th period, and as the U.S. is engaged in uh, countering Muslim terrorist groups, I think a lot of Republicans have tended to just be more sympathetic to Israel, and they view uh, Israel's struggle against the Palestinians, and, and particularly when they see things like rockets coming out of Gaza um, and uh, policies embraced by Hamas. I think that a lot of Republicans tend to lump that in together with the ongoing U.S. fight against groups like al-Qaeda and, and Islamic State. Um, second, I think from a domestic politics perspective, evangelicals who um, are extremely supportive uh, of uh, the right-wing Israeli government, probably more so than, than any other group, um, they are just more important now within Republican politics than they were, particularly because, um, you know, starting with uh, the George W. Bush re-election in 04, when Republicans figured out that they were going to win elections by appealing to their base rather than trying to uh, broaden, the, broaden the scope of the party. If you're appealing to your base, then your hardcore base becomes all the more important. And for evangelicals, Israel is just a top issue. So, you know, that's that's another factor. And thirdly, with the Trump administration in particular, the the change in the Republican platform was spearheaded by David Friedman and Jason Greenblatt when they were campaign advisors. Um, David Friedman is uh, probably the I think it's safe to say that he is um, the most right wing of any Republic, senior Republican official who has been working on this issue ever. And we talk about the platform. That's that's really, you know, a, a couple a couple of, of guys um, changing it because Trump was the nominee. And these are the two guys who were running his Israel policy during the campaign. So some of it is just is just, you know, dumb luck in terms of uh, bad luck, in, in my view, but dumb luck in terms of personnel. I think that um, were we sitting here today under a President Marco Rubio, I think Israel policy would look a lot like it looked under George W. Bush. So, you know, we're talking about uh, a strongly pro-Israel policy that that uh, that leans to the right, um, but not one that completely blows up the two-state framework in in the way that Trump has. Um, so, you know, it's uh, frankly, I, I I have no idea under the next Republican president. What it will look like uh, if it's someone, you know, if it's if it's Mike Pence, for instance, or the next Republican nominee, I should say, if it's Mike Pence, you know, that's going to be a complete continuation of Trump administration policies. But, you know, if it's a if it's a more foreign policy establishment figure, a guy like Rubio, um, then uh, I just don't know. On the one hand, I think that someone like that, his impulses will be um, to try to take a more moderate approach. But the fact of the matter is that the Republican base is moving in a different direction, and that matters. So, well, um, even if you have a Republican president with more moderate impulses, their voter base may not stand for a more moderate policy because the Trump administration has moved the goalposts so far. And because of that, maybe Republican Israel policy has been irrevocably changed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, in, the, in the Israeli context, we talk about facts on the ground. Well, there are now new facts on the ground uh, in the U.S. context as well, and they become very hard to reverse. Okay, so this gives us definitely a lot to think about where American politics go 
in terms of the Israel issue, where American foreign policy is going, where Israeli foreign policy is going. And I think this conversation has given us at least three decades of things to think about. So, <laughs> Michael, thanks for joining us. Uh, of course. I can't believe this is the first time, by the way. Something, something's off about that. So <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me, and uh, I'll, I'll look forward to doing this again. Definitely. And, and um, you're writing about the midterms for your column this week. Correct. Right. So you can, uh, for all our listeners, you should, if you're not already reading Michael's column, which you should be, um, you should look out for this week's Koplau column, which you can find on our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org. And this week's one is going to be about the midterm elections and a lot of what we talked about. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can learn more about Israel Policy Forum's work on our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org, and on our social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Telegram. Thanks for joining us. Okay.